0: Over the last number of weeks, I say this at the beginning of every sermon over the last number of weeks, we have been looking at and considering the suffering that Jesus underwent over the last 24 hours or so of his life. It's called the passion of the Christ. I don't know if you know this, but uh, passion refers to suffering. We think of the word passion uh, as uh, a word that means emotional or really excited about something or or having a deep interest in something. Classically, that's not what the word meant. It meant the suffering of an individual. So, you know, Bach wrote St. Matthew's Passion and St. Mark's Passion and St. John's Passion, etc., That's what we've been looking at, and we've been seeing how Jesus suffered at the hands of all kinds of different people. And it was agonizing because by the end of his life, by the time he was on that cross and hanging there, paying the penalty for your sins and mine, he was utterly alone. Everybody had turned their back on him. Everybody had deserted him. I was in my devotions this morning and I read from John 17 and, and it struck me that Jesus said to the disciples in his upper uh, room discourse at the Last Supper, he said to them, he said, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be scattered and you're all going to leave me, and I am going to be alone. And that's precisely what happened. But while he was on the cross, something happened, something that was different, something that was unique. Because you see, up until this moment, after Jesus has that moment in the garden where the Father uh, allows Him to see even just a, a little glimpse of what He's going to have to bear when He goes to the cross. He pulls back the veil, so to speak, of the, before the cup of His wrath. And Jesus is overwhelmed and He's pleading with the Father, you know, if this cup could pass from me, let it pass from me. And of course the Father says, no, it must be this way. And the, and the Son submits to His Father and He says, well, let your will be done, not my will be done, After that, Jesus demonstrates a tremendous amount of calm and composure throughout every other scene after that. You know, the soldiers come to arrest him. Judas betrays him. Peter pulls out a sword and tries to defend him. And Jesus just says, put the sword away. Judas, friend, come and do what you you meant to do. He's very calm about it and then of course in front of the sanhedrin he's getting accused of blasphemy and he's being beaten and slapped around and made fun of and he doesn't say a word he just he just takes it and he's so calm and and then they take him to pilate and pilate is questioning him and he just stands there sort of stoic and finally he hands him over to to the the soldiers who put that crown on him and they put the robe on him and they mock him and they beat him and they they whip him with these with this cat of nine tails kind of whip and they shred his flesh on his back and he's bleeding from head to toe. But all the while he's got this incredible poise. It's quite astounding really. And then he goes to the cross. And he's been stoic and calm and composed up until this point, and then all of a sudden he's not. In verse 46, it says that he cried out in a loud voice, and in verse 50, again, it says that he cried out again in a loud voice. Now, actually, literally, the original word there is not cry out. The literal word there is scream. Blood-curdling, of despair, of, of dereliction. Jesus loses it. And the question, of course, is why? Why is that the moment, out of all the moments, that Jesus finally cracks? We get a hint, actually, from verse 45, when it says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land darkness came over the land for three hours the world went black and it was during that time while the world was steeped in darkness that, that Jesus screamed and cried out. Can you imagine you are around the, the cross of Jesus and, and, and all of a sudden the light begins to fade? This is the middle of the day, okay? This is, this is high noon and all of a sudden there is blackness. You are shrouded in blackness and out of that blackness, out of that darkness, you hear this blood-curdling scream come from the cross of Jesus Christ. Why is that when it happened? Well, Throughout the Bible, when the biblical writers want to use a metaphor to describe eternal lostness, uh, when they want to describe judgment and punishment, basically when they want to describe what hell is like, they use this metaphor of darkness. In fact, they use it far more often than they use the metaphor of fire. Fire is the thing that people typically think about when they think of hell and they think of judgment, etc. And Jesus uses that metaphor, it's true. And Revelation uses that metaphor to a degree, that's true as well. But, but actually, the Bible talks a lot more about this, this, this thing of darkness, physical darkness symbolized judgment it was it was considered a bad omen in ancient times not just among the jews but actually the romans believed that too when there was an unexplained darkness it was a it was an omen it, it portended something uh, uh something terrible coming the judgment of the gods or the judgment of god and that is precisely what happened on that fateful day let me ex- explain why that is so You go back to Genesis chapter 1. This is the creation of the world. And it says that that the world was void and formless. It was disintegrated. Before the creation of the world, it it was chaos. It was disorder. And then it says, God said, let there be light. And God triumphed over this darkness at creation. And this light overcame the darkness and now order came to, to take over disorder and, and, and to, to take over chaos and integration happened rather than disintegration because God brought all the things together that were meant to be together in order to have this created order that you and I enjoy. And then throughout the Bible, the further that you get away from light, from God's light... The further you get away from that and into the darkness, the more you experience disintegration. And you see that actually in the world. If you take a plant and you put a plant in a closet away from the sun, what happens? It starts to die and eventually it does and it decays. Okay, don't talk about mushrooms, people. Generally, plants need the sun. And if you, if you take the earth and you were to, to remove it from its orbit and pull it away from the sun, what would happen? The earth would go, would go cold and it would go dark. There would be decay. And this actually happens on a psychological level as well. When you are, when you are steeped in darkness for too long, you begin to experience psychological mental disintegration. So, for example, in, in 1914, Ernest Shackleton... A, a, a British explorer. He wanted to be the first person to explore the South Pole. And so he took his ship called the Endurance down to the South Pole. But what happened was was they got caught in the ice. And he and his crew were stuck in the ice for four months or more maybe even. And, and listen to what he says. He says this in, about the experience. In all the world... There is no desolation more complete than the polar night. No warmth, no life, no movement. Only those who have experienced it can fully appreciate what it means to be without the sun day after day and week after week. Few unaccustomed to it can fight off its effects altogether, and it has driven some men mad. When you are engulfed in darkness, you go mad. Now, those of you who have struggled with deep and profound depression, you get this in a way that other people don't. I've spoken with people who have depression and you got to understand, deep clinical depression is not, it's not being sad all the time. It's almost being emotionally dead. It's feeling like you're existing, but you're not living. I remember a man once describing to me a period of depression that he went through after his son was tragically killed. And for a couple of years, he said it was like there was no color in the world. Everything was gray. When you are plunged and engulfed in the midst of darkness, you feel this psychological disintegration that Jesus was experiencing. You know, in the book of Exodus, uh, we read about Jesus res- or God rescuing the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he sends all these plagues. Frogs and gnats and boils and flies, etc. And the picture is one of nature falling apart. Chaos is, 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 is closing in on the natural order in Egypt. And they are precursors to God's judgment so that when God finally brings His judgment on Egypt, when death finally comes, it is preceded by a darkness that falls across the land. And it's because the people had moved Away from God. In the Old Testament prophets, they pick up on this theme and they describe God's judgment in these terms. For example, Jeremiah 4 verse 23 says this, I looked at the earth and it was formed. Their light was gone. Isaiah says something similar in chapter 13. He says this, The day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day, with wrath and fierce vengeance to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. That happened when Jesus screamed when he cried out my god my god why have you forsaken me the sun was blotted out because jesus in that moment he was losing god he was being plunged into the, the outer darkness, away from the presence of God. He was getting further and further from God's light, from God's presence. It shone so brightly in his life before his incarnation as he was in the presence of God and they enjoyed this deep, profound fellowship with one another and they, loved, they poured love into one another throughout all eternity and then when he came into this world, he lived under the light of God's grace. You'll remember that at his baptism. What did the father say? This is my son Whom I love, in Him I am well pleased, and He He basked in the glow of the light of God. But then, on that cross, when He was plunged, when He was suffering for your sake, more and more, until it was just a pinprick, and He was reaching out for it, and He was crying out for that light, and then it went dark, and He was utterly alone. And he experienced profound disintegration, cosmic darkness, and so he screamed. Because you know, if you've been there, you know that sometimes it's all you got. You can't even put a couple thoughts together. All you can do is scream. Now, in verse 50, you've got to understand something here, okay? In verse 50, there's this second scream, and then after that scream, all this stuff happens, right? Like, whew, wild stuff. Earthquakes, rocks splitting, tombs opening up, people rising from the dead. I mean, it's wild, and I know some of you probably have a lot of questions about that that I'm not going to answer. <laughs> Tough one. And you might be thinking to yourself, like, well, what, what? What was Jesus doing? Was he? Was was it sort of like on the cross? He just kind of had to hang on. Like, if he could just get through it, if he could just hang on, if he could just bear it for a little while longer. You know, he hung on that cross for about six hours. Did he have to just hang on until the end and take it and take it until it was finally finished? Is that how it works? And the answer is no. You see. Some of us who are living in the darkness right now, we, 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 we know, we know because we believe the promises of God, we know that one day that this cloud will lift, that one day things will get better, they will change, and we know that in our soul, and sometimes we worry about it, and sometimes we're only holding on to that promise with the very tips of our fingernails, but we know that's going to happen. And that wasn't the case for Jesus. Because you see, heaven and hell, they don't exist in time. They're not time-bound, spatial places. They, they are spiritual conditions. You are either in the presence of the loving Father or you are away from the presence of the loving Father. And so to go to heaven or to go to hell, there's, there's no such thing as, as three hours in hell or three hours in heaven or three days or, or, or even three years. They're not time-bound dimensions. And so what Jesus experienced in his suffering was, was eternal lostness, utter lostness, infinite suffering of anyone who would be eternally cast out of God's presence. And so it's not like the suffering that you and I experience. And it's, it's unique, and it's unique in this way too, because... because No one had ever experienced what Jesus experienced before or after. His cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry was a cry of obedience, you see. That was a, a cry of faithfulness. That was a cry of love. That was him crying out to his father and saying, even though I am being plunged into the very depths of hell and I am experiencing this suffering that I do not deserve and I am doing it out of love for those who love me, I will be faithful to you, Father, even though you are turning your back on me. Everyone has left me alone. Everyone has abandoned me. I was sure that there was one who would always be there for me and Even now in this moment, you have chosen in your sovereignty because you love people like you guys and people like me because you love those kind of people that you would turn your back on me. I will still cry out to you in faithfulness. I will not turn my back on you. And yet he was cast out. Do you not see this has never happened before? and it was done so it would never happen again. Never, my friends, listen, please, never, ever, ever has someone who has cried out for God's mercy and grace and love been denied. No one who has ever pleaded with God Please come to me, rescue me, save me. I, I desperately need you. No one who has ever honestly and sincerely cried out to God in that abject way has ever been denied. Now I know some of you here this morning probably feel like it. You feel like you've been crying out and and God isn't answering your prayer and he's denying you. But you got to understand, feeling something and that thing being actually true are two different things. They're not the same thing. You know, my, my daughter, she teaches swimming lessons in the summer. Many of you know that because your kids go to her. And sometimes she gets a kid that is like scared of the water, Okay. Sometimes it's because the parents really think that their kids should get swimming lessons at age two. And, you know, I don't know. You might be wasting your money, parents, because I'm thinking a two-year-old, what are they? Whatever. I'm, that's so out of what I should be talking about. I'm probably ruining her business while I speak, too. No, no, no. I'm telling you, as soon as a kid can crawl, you've got to get him in the pool, folks. Um. They're scared of the water. They don't want to put their head in the water. They don't even want to put their toes in the water. They don't want to get in the water. And, and my daughter, she has to be so ridiculously reassuring. It's okay. I'm right here. I will be with you. I will, I'm watching you. I'm taking care of you. And sometimes she's holding on to a kid, and she takes them into the water, and she starts to sink them into the water, and the kid loses it and says... You're letting me go. I'm going to sink. I'm going to drown. And my daughter has her hands right under them. They think they're in danger. They think they're being abandoned. But they're not. And some of us here this morning, maybe, maybe that's us. We're feeling abandoned. We feel like we're in danger. We feel like we're in peril because our prayers, they feel like they're going unanswered. Our sorrows are, are lingering rather than being lifted. Our, our wounds, maybe we've experienced hurts that, 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 that have wounded us deeply and it feels like they're not healing or, or we have fears that, that we have lived with for so long and we cannot, cannot shake them or, or we have sins that just persist no matter how hard we fight them. They're still there and they're sticking to us and we, we want to cry out, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this morning, the answer to you, if that's your circumstance, the answer is to you is he didn't, he hasn't, he cannot because he has forsaken his son so that he would never forsake you. He turned his back on his son in that moment so that he would never, ever turn his back on you. He let the sun be plunged in abject darkness and desolation, so that you would never be plunged in the abject darkness and desolation. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, a wonderful poet, puts it this way: "Yea, once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, his universe hath shaken. It went up singless or single, echoless. My God, I am forsaken." It went up from the Holy's lips amid his lost creation that of the lost no one should use those words of desolation. Jesus screamed those words of desolation so that you and I would never despair and have to scream those words of desolation. Do you notice that the text says that, that as Jesus screamed, the curtain was torn in two? And that curtain represented the curtain in the... Te- that curtain was the curtain in the temple. It was the curtain that separated the most holy place, the place where God dwells with his people, from the people himself, because his holiness could never be, uh, could never be uh, uh, exposed to our sin, because if, if it was, then, then his holiness would consume it like fire. And we could not be in the presence of God. Only once a year, on the Day of Atonement, a high priest could go into the holiest place for a very brief moment to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, and then he had to leave again. That's how much access God's people had to him. And when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was torn in two. The doors, the the gates to heaven were flung open so that you and I could always be in the presence of God, no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're experiencing, because we have been closed. Cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Another Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot, used to write that, you know, on the darkest, cloudiest day, the the sun is still shining. You just don't see it. And when you and I don't see it, when you and I don't experience the presence of God, what we have to do in those moments is we have to take our experience, we have to take our feelings, we have to plunge them in the story of truth. And that story of truth is the one we're reflecting on together right now this morning. You know, the, the first person to get what on earth is going on is this soldier. This soldier says, surely he was the, man, the son of God. And and he, he, he understood everything. Mark tells us that when he saw how Jesus died, he exclaimed, surely this man was the son of God. Now think about this. This is a soldier. He's a centurion. He's a pagan Roman hardened military guy. This guy has seen a lot of people die. I don't know if you've ever witnessed somebody dying. I've never actually witnessed somebody dying in front of me. I've only been there soon after. Some of you maybe have witnessed it. This guy had witnessed many, many deaths, but there was something unique about the death of Jesus Christ because he had not been transformed by the death of any other person, but when he saw Jesus die, he was transformed. There was something about Jesus dying, and you know what it was? The penny dropped. Jesus endured this cross with tenderness and with gentleness. And with total conviction, so that he could liberate us and redeem us from our sins. And it melted, it cracked, if I could say, this soldier's hard heart. So I leave you with this Matthew is telling you and me look at the cross. Look at the cross and think about that cry that he uttered. Look at what your king is enduring for you. And the more you meditate on that, the more that sinks into your heart, the more you will find your own heart melted and you'll find your own darkness begin to lift. The darkness of your guilt or or the darkness of your shame or or your your darkness of your isolation or of your addiction, of your anger, of your bitterness, of your fear, of your anxiety, of your self-pity, of your disappointment. Because there is no more powerful Story than the story of the Son of God looking down through the corridor of history and seeing you and you and you and you and you and you, and you looking down through the corridor of history and seeing you and seeing all that you're going to experience and seeing all the sins you're going to commit and seeing all the suffering you're going to undergo and saying, I will go for you. I am doing this for you. May we today meditate on that truth. May we find it profoundly comforting. And may it begin to lift the darkness that may weigh upon our hearts. Amen. Let's pray. God Almighty, Father, help us to believe Good Friday. Help us to believe that when Jesus cried, that cry of dereliction, that he did it so that we would never have to. That when we feel like we have been abandoned, that the truth remains, we have not. We cannot, because Jesus was for us. Father, make that enough. Open our eyes to see that that is actually, at the end of the day, the only thing that matters Lift the darkness. In Jesus we pray, amen.